You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Luke's Gospel, to chapter 1. Our reading will begin in with verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 4, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, Father, that you may teach us and guide us, lead us, uh, instruct us, O Father. Open your word to our hearts, and then same, open our hearts to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. This morning we take a break from our study in Genesis. And actually a few weeks ago when Tammy and I were off, one of the things that, that um, one of the burdens, one of the things that I wanted to do with that time was try to decide where we were going to go. We're almost done with Genesis, which is really Hard to believe Genesis is a big book. If you think it's a big book when you're reading it, try teaching it, <laughs> try studying Lots of verses. Um, and we're really near the end. Uh, and what's next? And of course, the logical thing to do is to go right into, uh, right into Exodus. And I've already begun to show you some of the linkage, especially between the later chapters of Genesis and Exodus. But having wanted to get into the Gospels, wanting to get into some New Testament uh, study as well, because we've been in the Old Testament for so long, I was thinking about the Gospel of uh, Mark, and then uh, it dawned on me. It was like, Rick, you're getting ahead of yourself because you're not going to finish Genesis this year. Uh, Christmas is coming. And uh, so where are we going to go? And really, I have to say, I don't know that I have an answer about Exodus or Mark. (laughs) because uh, it became very clear to me, to my measure of faith, that we should begin a little study in Luke. And uh, so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a number of passages uh, going all the way to Luke chapter 2 in the uh, Sundays leading up to Christmas. We should be able to make it all the way through the uh, story of the shepherds and the angels. And of course, this morning we come to uh, the prologue, as, as is often called, if you, um, if you look at probably any commentary on Luke, what you will probably find, first of all, and many of your study Bibles may have introductions, uh, you may have uh, this caveat that the opening um, verses of Luke's gospel is a display of some of the greatest Greek writing that we have actually uh, in, in our collection of ancient Greek writing, which... Uh, uh, goes to say that whoever wrote that, of course we know him to be Luke, the physician, uh, but what it goes to show is the intelligence um, of the one who 
uh, wrote these, uh, these verses. It's very polished Greek. Something else that uh, you may notice, and especially if you're reading the King James this morning or you're reading, uh, I think, the New American Standard, uh, the New King James and the ESV, which we just read, uh, you'll notice it's all one sentence. In, 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 in the Greek, it's one sentence. Um, I, I don't know how they teach English today, but when I was going through, uh, we were taught that that's a run-on sentence. And we were taught to expect red ink if we were to write sentences like that. Um, however, you know, modern English is, a, is one story. Ancient Greek is another. Uh, we have one long sentence. And when you read it, some translations, especially translations have a tendency to paraphrase, will break this up into smaller little chunks and throw a period here and there, which it can be helpful in understanding exactly what's going on. But you'll notice as we're reading it, we're seeing, wow, what is, okay, uh, Luke starts here. What, where is this going? What, what, uh, you know, what is Luke up to here? And that's the first question I want to take up this morning. What exactly is Luke up to? What is he doing with this opening, um, what our English teacher might call run-on sentence, uh, but the, the Greek scholars call great polished uh, Greek? What is Luke up to with this? Well, you'll notice in verse 1 that Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile. You see that idea of compiling. Uh, what is going on here is uh, these authors are compiling a narrative. In other words, um, what's going on here is they're, they're sitting down and they're writing things down. They're writing down uh, what is being preached concerning Christ. Now, as, as many of you know, one of the questions that I like to ask of a passage of Scripture when we're studying a passage of Scripture is what particular role does this passage of Scripture play in the overall story of the book? You're accustomed to me asking those questions and attempting to answer those questions. And if we ask that question of this first paragraph, we, had a, an, we get an extraordinary answer about this first paragraph, because this is the only place, or at least one of the very few places, where we get a glimpse of the method that the ancients used in writing a gospel. We learn there that many have undertaken to do this. Now, I think we should, how should we understand the many? Should we understand the many to be three or four? Should we understand the many to be 12 or 20? Uh, scholars, again, if you get into the commentaries, you're going to find some of the commentaries will debate that. I think the best answer to that is if we think of others. Others have done this. Uh, others have done this. How many of them? We don't know. It doesn't say. But others have done this. And they have attempted to write this gospel. Now, if we continue in this, if you look at verse 2, what is Luke up to? Many have undertaken to write a gospel, if you will, Verse 2, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. What is all that about? Well, what, what this is about is that many have sat down, they've been listening to the preaching of the apostles as they have been communicating the gospel. These, these apostles were eyewitnesses, and as they are preaching the gospel, there are people... <laughs> who are attempting to write these things down uh, with 100% fidelity, 
uh, to what the apostles are saying. So what is Luke saying with this? Luke is basically saying this. Others have done this. They've tried to, they, they've, they've, they've written these things down. And just as they have written these things down, I'm going, I am going to do the same thing. What is his goal? His goal is to write these things down and that they would be 100% accurate uh, to the teaching of the apostles. Now, something else to notice here, too. Notice that he is compiling a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. The things that have been accomplished. Now, um, that presupposes a plan, doesn't it? We, I don't think we would, we would be inclined to use the word accomplish if we're making this up as we go. That presupposes a plan. And we might ask ourselves, okay, what exactly, what things does Luke have in mind here? What things have been accomplished? Now, of course, where would we go to answer that question? We would go to the context to answer that question, wouldn't we? And what is the context? Now, those who have been uh, studying with us on Wednesday nights, you already know what I'm about to share. Uh, if, you hold, if you keep your place in Luke here, and if you turn to Acts chapter 1, keep your hand in Luke 1 and go to Acts chapter 1. Our Wednesday night Bible study folks already know where we're going with this uh, because they're accustomed. We've been, look, we've, been, we've been studying Acts on Wednesday nights. So um, folks, uh, just bear with me as, I, um, as we spend just a moment on this. If you notice in Acts chapter 1, and notice, notice how it begins. In the first book, you see that? That means there's, there's, there's another book, and it means it was first. Say, Rick, that was brilliant. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, who's the author of both? Luke is the author of both Acts. He's the author of Luke's gospel, the gospel that bears his name. Now, what's the point here? Well, the point, if we ask the question, what is Luke concerned about writing? He answers it here, doesn't he? He answers that it's about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, so if we're asking, okay, what exactly does Luke have in mind with the things that have been accomplished? Answer, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, can we be more specific than that? Oh, absolutely we can uh, you don't need to turn there for a second because I don't want to. I'm going to flip you around a little bit this morning, but I don't want to overdo that. But um, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to be looking at the coming of Christ. Obviously, we're going to be looking at the birth narratives, not only of Jesus, but the birth narrative of John the Baptist. So we have the coming of Jesus. Okay, but if we go to the apostles themselves, Luke has recorded these words. Luke has set out to give an accurate. Uh, to compile an accurate narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Now, he has done that. He has done that, namely, in the teaching of Peter. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, for example, in Peter's famous sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, if you look at verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs. Okay, so what has been accomplished? Jesus has come. That's number one. Number two, Jesus performed mighty miracles. In other words, God has attested to 
the authenticity of what Jesus is teaching by virtue of the mighty works that he did and the miracles that he did. Does that sound clear? Hopefully. It didn't sound real clear because it was coming out, but hopefully it was clear as it went in. Um, number one, Jesus has come. Number two, God is attesting to Jesus. He is who he says he is. What verifies that? Look at the mighty miracles that he's doing. Okay? Number three, if you continue, um, this Jesus, verse 23, Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Ah, there's a plan. That's what's being, that's what Luke is up to at the beginning of, of book number one, isn't it? What has been accomplished among us that presupposes a plan? This Jesus was delivered up according to a plan. I was making that point Wednesday night, actually. We were in, we're gonna, we're gonna go to one, two verses from, from, from Wednesday night, um, here in just a moment. But the point that Peter is making is that Jesus has been delivered up. Okay, everybody knows that. Jesus has been delivered up into the hands of lawless men. Okay, they know that. He's been crucified. But what he wants people to know is that this is according to plan. It's according to a definite plan. Okay, so Jesus has come. Jesus has been attested by God with many works and miracles. He's being delivered up according to plan. And in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him. And of course, then Peter begins, he begins to uh, demonstrate that the resurrection was predicted. It was prophesied by the Old Testament. We've studied that on Wednesday nights to some degree. Uh, so we have the raising, we have the resurrection, the coming of Jesus, the attesting of Jesus by God with mighty works and miracles, uh, being delivered up according to the plan, being raised from the dead, the resurrection. And then if you look down to verse 36, Acts 2, verse 36, let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain, hold on to that word certain, that's an important word. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So he's Lord and Christ. He is Lord and Christ. He has ascended, right? He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, just as, our, just as, just as the Apostles' Creed says. He has ascended to the right hand of God Father Almighty. From there, he dwells in absolute authority. And if you turn to Acts 13, I just want to give you a couple verses from another sermon, this one preached by the Apostle Paul. And they're very similar. If you compare Paul's sermon here in Acts 13, he begins his sermon in verse 16. Um, if you compare, it's a very remarkable, it's remarkably close to Peter's uh, sermon. But if you look at verse 38 and 39, Acts 13, 38 and 39, the Apostle Paul says there, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is through Christ Jesus, through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What has, got, what has been accomplished among us? That's the question we're asking. What has been accomplished among us is marvelous. We can be freed from that which we could never be freed from the law because of this man, Christ Jesus, who has come as promised, right? 
He's been attested by God with many, many miracles. He was delivered up according to plan. He's been raised according to the plan. He has ascended on high. He's been made both Lord and Christ. Through Him, forgiveness of sins. Back to Luke chapter 1. This is what is being preached by the apostles. And this is what Luke, in verse 3 there, Luke says, you know, others have tried to undertake this, verse 1. It seemed good, verse 3, it seemed good to me also to undertake this. Again, it's a snapshot. If we want to see a little bit of the methodology of how the gospel writers function, this is one of the only places where we get that. It's, it's one of the only windows that we have into this. And here, uh, Luke is saying, it seemed good to me also. And he adds, having followed all things closely for some time past. In other words, what Luke is saying here is that he is compiling a narrative. He is writing a gospel that is 100% in fidelity with the apostles. But he's investigated this as well. He's investigated this. He has followed all of these things closely. Now, we might ask ourselves in the, in the course of his investigation, how, how has he followed all things closely? What exactly has he done? Undoubtedly, he has interviewed and spent time with the apostles. Now, what is so significant about that is because the apostle has to be an eyewitness. How do we know this? We know this from Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, you'll remember, Peter says, you know what? Judas is no longer with us. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed us, he's no longer with us. Okay? We need to replace him. So who do we have? Uh, the criteria, the resume that's needed to be an apostle here. On your resume, you're going to have to say that I was with, I was around from the baptism of John all the way to the ascension of Jesus. Now, that's going to narrow the field down quite a bit, isn't it? You look at your resume. Well, I was around for the latter part of it. Well, we're looking for someone with a little more experience. We need someone who was around all the way back. Well, I wasn't in yet, you know. So this is going to, this is, this is going to come down to a pretty narrow group of people. But what, what is important here is that they are eyewitnesses all the way from the, uh, the uh, John baptizing out into the wilderness to Jesus being ascended uh, to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Uh, that, is, uh, that is the criteria for being an apostle. Luke obviously spent time with the apostles, their being firsthand witnesses. Now, of course, there are many others who are witnesses. The, the information that we're going to be studying in the, in the next couple of weeks here uh, is obviously information that Luke probably almost certainly gained from interviewing Mary, the mother of Jesus. And almost certainly that's the case, uh, interviewing uh, Mary. So there would have been an interview of Mary. If you look at Luke chapter 8, verse 2, actually for context's sake, let's take a look at Luke 8 and start with verse 1. Luke chapter 8. Luke 8, verse 1. There we read, soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And there you'll see at the very end of verse 1, and the 12 were with him. These are eyewitnesses, right? 12 were with him. 
Verse number two, and also some women had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene. Now, sometimes Luke's gospel is referred to as the ladies' gospel. Has anybody ever heard that before? I know I've mentioned that maybe once or twice. Has anyone ever heard that? Luke's gospel is the ladies' gospel. Years ago, that was popular. Why would they call? Why would we call Luke's gospel the ladies' gospel? It's because of the reference of, to women. There's a lot of reference to women in Luke's gospel, more so than the other gospels. And here we have one example of that. Some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Uh, Luke may have interviewed Mary. We don't know for sure. He may have interviewed her. But I think for certain he, he interviewed, verse 3, uh, Joanna. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, who was Herod's household manager. Luke has a lot of insight. If we did a thorough study of Luke's gospel, we would discover he has a lot of insight into Herod's, Herod's household. Now, where did that come from? Scholars tell us, and I think they're correct, uh, that probably through this source here, either Joanna or her husband, Cusa, or both. Um, so he would have interviewed them. Were they around from start to finish? No, but they were around quite a bit. Um, back to chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, in the first verse, we saw that there are many who have undertaken to compile a narrative. Did, did Luke use any of those authors? Most likely he did. He most certainly would have used Mark. Mark's gospel is probably already, uh, it's probably already in play at this time. Uh, Mark was a secretary to Peter. Um, most scholars believe Mark was, well, I shouldn't say most scholars, many scholars believe Mark was the first gospel. Um, so um, probably interviewed Mark, spent time with Mark. Um, so what is Luke up to? He's putting together a gospel. He wants the gospel to be faithful to what happened, doesn't he? And he's, he's following all things closely, uh, going back to the firsthand sources, to the eyewitnesses, and we also see that he desires uh, to provide an orderly account. If you look at verse 3, it seemed good, that's chapter 1, Luke 1, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. For you, most excellent Theophilus. Now a question comes, and this is a rabbit trail. I'll just warn you, it's a rabbit trail. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are very curious, who was Theophilus? And if this morning, if I had to come up here and I said, okay, the subject of this morning is Theophilus, and uh, Theophilus' name means uh, lover of God, Theo, Theos, God, Philus, love, lover of God. And this morning, we're going to spend our time discovering who he is. It'd be a total waste of time. I wouldn't say it'd be a total waste of time, but I don't think it's going to edify a single person in this room. It's because, because we're going to be getting off the point here. We're going to be getting off the trail here. Who was Theophilus? We don't know. I could preach the sermon right now. I already got the introduction out of the way. Let me give the conclusion. We don't know who he is. Let me close in prayer. We're done. We got that out of the way. Uh, we don't know who he is. Uh, and with the light we have at the moment, all we can do is guess. And I don't think that's going... Listen, as you're going to see, the main point here is not guesswork. The main point of what Luke is here is the total opposite of guesswork. So to take a passage like this and spend 35 minutes in guesswork would be to do the exact opposite of what the import of this passage is all about. Does that make sense? If not, it will here hopefully in a couple of minutes. Let's not be tempted to get all caught up in who Theophilus is, but let's keep the uh, plain things, the main things. 
What is the plain things? Luke is setting out to write an orderly account. Why? He's, he's going to provide the church with an orderly account. Does Luke find fault with the others who have written? There's no indication in the, in the prologue that he has. There's no indication that he has. Well, we might ask, well, then why does he want to try his hand at writing one? I think the answer is because he's a physician. It's a guess. Others, it's not unique to me. I've, I've read this in several other um, accounts. Other, other authors have come to this conclusion. Uh, but physicians have a tendency to be thorough, don't they? You know, on Friday, it was with mom and dad. We were up at Presby Hospital, and dad had to answer questions. And there was a young doctor. She couldn't have been more than 30 years old, could she? Um, a young doctor, so competent, though. She was so amazingly competent. And um, her, her, her questions, uh, her questioning, um, it, it, it was just, she displayed such, such competence at what she was doing, and she was so, so thorough. Probably an hour, what, hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes, maybe? Good, yeah, overall, but that particular doctor was with us for probably an hour and 15 minutes, taking her time. That's what you expect of a good doctor. Some of you have complained because many of you are in the medical field, and you've, you've been around, and you've seen things that maybe weren't quite as thorough. You're expecting things to be thorough. This is what we expect. We know Luke was a physician. Paul calls him. Paul says in Colossians 4.14 that Luke, the physician... Luke, the physician, is with me. And by the way, when Paul is saying that, an interesting little thing on the side here, Paul is writing in prison in Rome when he says that, probably in the early 60s, about the same time that Luke's gospel is being written and Acts is being written. So it's kind of a little thing on the side there. Uh, but nevertheless, Luke is a physician. Luke's scope of his gospel goes wider than the other gospels. Think about how the other gospels start. John goes back to creation, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. He goes back to, to creation. Matthew goes to a genealogy, correct? You get that long list of names you're tempted to skip, right? Um, and Mark, Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, doesn't he? But Luke, Luke's scope is wider. Luke, Luke starts with, as we're going to see here, he's starting with the foretelling of the conception of John the Baptist and the foretelling of the conception of Jesus in the virgin womb of Mary. It's wider. It's a wider scope. It's, it's, it, I don't want to say the other gospel writers aren't thorough, but I would say that Luke's scope is very wide. And incidentally, what is the longest book in the New Testament? Anybody? Take a guess. And being we're studying in Luke, it might be a good answer to say Luke. If you say Luke, you get the star on your forehead. It is Luke. He's, that's the longest book in, in the Bible. And if you take Luke and Acts and you put them two together, you have Luke writing about a quarter of the New Testament. Very thorough. His, his, his goal is to write an orderly account of the things that have happened. Now, I have been speaking up to this point entirely of the human writer. And if I stop and I move to my second point right now, I'm doing you a great disservice because I could lead you to believe I was just the activity of a human writer, a human writer doing a human investigation, merely working in his own strength. Let's not for, forget for a second that as Luke writes, he is writing under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. So that ultimately as Luke writes these words down, by the inspiration of Holy Scripture, what we ultimately end up having is the Word of God, which is incredible, isn't it? 
It's incredible. Now, we see what Luke is up to. Let's ask a second question. Why is he doing it? The answer, very clearly, verse 4. He's writing so that you may have what? Certainty. And that's the key, that's the key word. See, that's why we don't, we don't want to run down a rabbit trail with Theophilus and spend 35 minutes in uncertainty when the, when the passage is about certainty. It's not about uncertainty. It's about certainty. Luke is writing, his purpose is so that we may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, what things? This is a set of bookends. I've pointed this out before. Sometimes in Scripture, like why would I choose just verses 1 through 4? Because there's a set of bookends. What do I mean by bookends? Well, there is the things that have been accomplished among us. You see that at the end of verse 1? And there are the things that you have been taught at the end of verse 4. They are the same things. Theophilus has already been instructed in these things. In fact, the word that's used, the word that's translated here is the word that we get catechism from. Where does catechism come from? Catechesis. It comes from here and many other places. Church didn't just make it up and decide to do it. They come from here. They were instructed. Careful instruction took place. He's been instructed in this. So in many of the things that Luke, Luke is writing to people who have been instructed. And that's really important for us to understand. Why is it so important for us to understand? Because people have been instructed, people, other people who have heard the, the, the apostles preach and teach can look at this and say, well, ah, this isn't quite right, Luke. You don't quite have it right here. That's not quite right. Or others could say, hey, I was there, Luke. I was there. Uh, this isn't quite right, you see. Um, they might not have known everything, but they would know a lot. So that... That leads us to say, well, how does, how does Luke decide to arrive at certainty? Well, first is the evidence. We have the evidence. I've already been speaking a lot this morning about eyewitness testimony. You know, you have the eyewitness testimony. Those who were eyewitnesses, uh, verse 2. Uh, you know, if you're not looking for it, you might not see it, but as soon as you start looking for eyewitness testimony in the New Testament, you know what you start to discover? It's a major import in the New Testament. It's really huge. I mean, you might not think about it as you're reading it until you start looking for it. And then you discover, whoa, wait a second, eyewitnesses are everywhere. In fact, all over the place. I mean, I would give you a few verses, but I'll just give you the New Testament. Where do we have eyewitnesses? Everywhere. All over the place. And why? Well, if you're conducting an investigation, I don't think we have any criminal justice. I don't think we have any criminal justice majors here or anybody that had maybe criminal justice on the side. But when you're covering an investigation, what do you do? Well, you go gather eyewitnesses, right? People who are firsthand. Do we have any criminal justice majors in the room? Any? You go gather, you go gather, you go gather eyewitnesses. And you talk with one over here, and then you talk with another one over there, and then you talk with another one over there, and so forth. And then you compare what you've heard. And if what you're getting is a, you're getting a different story over here that contradicts a story over there, that contradicts a story over here, what do you got? You got mumbo-jumbo. This is not accurate. Something's wrong. And you write it off. But if you have folks telling you things, they're in essence getting to the same facts, especially with different wording, 
I mean, the wording is different, but it's not so different that they're not getting to the, they're, they're kind of getting to the same facts. What do you have here? Well, you're probably arriving at somewhere close to the truth. Whereas if we have a conspiracy, how would we identify a conspiracy? A group of people get together and say, okay, here's the story, memorize the line, and keep it together. Don't stray off the script. Well, that's easy enough to tell because when you've got this guy over here, this guy over here, this lady over here, this woman over here, what do you got? They're all repeating the same thing. You know, we, we could, five of us could go in different rooms and then we could all get together and I'd say, well, here, here's, what, here's what the first person said. Well, that's funny. That's exactly what the second person said. Well, you know, guess what? That's exactly what the third person said. We'd begin to think that there's a conspiracy, wouldn't we? Most certainly. Sometimes people will ask, why are there four Gospels? Why? It's for that very reason. It's for that very reason. Do they tell the story exactly with the same words? Like you're reading, you read Matthew, you know, and you get through Matthew, and then you, you read Mark, and you say, wait a second, I've read some of this stuff in Matthew. But there's like a detail in, that Mark might have that Matthew didn't have, or there's a detail that Matthew has that Mark didn't have. But then when you get to Luke, you say, well, you know what? Some of these stories, I'm hearing them all over again. There's so much there that, yes, this is what has happened, but they're in, they're in different words. Just what you would expect from four eyewitnesses, right? So we have the evidence. We have the eyewitness testimony. We have miracles. The interesting thing about the miracles that Jesus performs is that nobody discredits the miracles. You may think about it. If you wanted to discredit Jesus, how would you discredit Jesus? These miracles, you know, they're a farce. They're a hoax. They're right. Nobody does that. His enemies never go there, do they? Why? Because many of them saw the miracles. They were eyewitnesses to the miracles. They recognize, his enemies even recognize, he's doing, he's doing amazing things. And instead of saying, instead of saying, you know, these, these, we haven't figured out how you're doing it yet, but these miracles are all farce. Instead of doing that, they say, well, you're acting in the power of Satan. That's how you're doing it. But they're not discrediting the miracles, are they? The miracles are attesting to the authenticity that Jesus is really who he says he is. And then we have the resurrection. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. And then he basically says, listen, some of them have passed on, but many of them are still alive. Go check it out. Look them up. Do your own investigation. You see how the, the New Testament authors all just invite you. Leah? You're just being invited to do, do and conduct your own investigation. We, you know, it'll, it'll only serve to strengthen your faith. Go do your investigation. Do all of these things. But no, Jesus has appeared. We've had breakfast with him. Some of us have touched him. He has appeared. He is here. So there's the evidence. Now, a question. Luke is trying to arrive at certainty. How is Luke arriving at certainty? We've seen the evidence. Is the evidence enough to reach certainty? Can we reach certainty by the evidence alone? The answer is no. Um, the answer is no. The evidence, no. Uh, the evidence, no. It's not enough. People attempt to explain it away. Uh, it's not enough. So what is Luke up to? He's bringing in the witness of the Word. Notice that he says, back to his prologue, he says the things that have been accomplished among us. Okay? That presupposes a plan, right? A definite plan. Where does the definite plan come from? It comes from the Word of God. And that's what the, that's, see, that's what the apostles were doing. 
They were saying, listen, okay, we know it's a tough sell that the Messiah could die on a tree. But what you need to understand is that was the definite plan of God. That was his plan all along. And the resurrection, they're coming out of from the Psalms, you know. They're in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. They're in Zechariah. They're in all of these messianic texts. And they're saying, listen, this has been the plan of God. This is the definite plan of God, that the Messiah should come and that he should die on the tree and that he should be raised so that his body knows no corruption. So in other words, you have the evidence. They're pointing to the evidence. The evidence is not enough. They go from the evidence to point to the Word. They're pointing to the Word. Luke wants us to have certainty. How do we begin? Here's the evidence. This is the evidence. But we don't stop at the evidence. This evidence matches up perfectly with the Word of God that was given centuries before by the prophets. So we have the Word. Now, is the evidence in the Word enough? Is the evidence in the Word enough? Our, our, our answer is no. We have to have one more, and this is the clincher. And it's the work and testimony of the Holy Spirit. The work and testimony of the Holy Spirit. Where does Luke develop that at? Let's think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus in chapter 24 of Luke's Gospel. These two disciples, you know, Jesus has just been crucified. They're downcast. Their hearts are broke. They're on their way home. And then Jesus appears behind them. And they're discussing these things. You know the story? They're discussing these things, and Jesus says, what are you guys discussing? And they look at him like they're, they're prevented from being able to recognize Jesus and say, were you the only one in, in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened? This Jesus of Nazareth, this great prophet, we thought he was the one who was to come, but, but it, he was crucified, and it's all over. Some of our women, though, they said they, that the tomb was empty and that he's appeared, but, you know, and then what does Jesus do? Okay, the, the disciples have the evidence they have the evidence. They are eyewitnesses to the evidence. Jesus brings in the Word. He shows them from Moses and the prophets all of the things concerning himself, doesn't he? And he brings to them the Word. And what is their testimony? As Jesus does this and the Holy Spirit accompanies Jesus' ministry to these, apostles, or to these uh, disciples, they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the Scriptures to us? Now, and we might put it another way even more clearly if we go to Acts 16. You don't need to turn there, but in Acts 16, there's a story of a certain Lydia. And Lydia hears the gospel, and what happens to Lydia? We're told explicitly that the Lord opened her heart. And, and we could go to many other places to see this. So how do we have certainty? There's the evidence, right? There's the evidence. Secondly, there's the Word, right? Thirdly, Thirdly, the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, let's close with this. What does all this mean to us? I think the, the wonderful thing is that we can have, Luke is telling, Luke is writing, Luke's goal is so that we can have certainty. And Luke is writing under the administration of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we might have certainty. What does that mean? That means that we can have certainty. Right? Is that what that means? I think that's what that means. Doesn't, I mean, nothing tricky about that. Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we can have certainty. What does that mean? That means we can have certainty. You would be saying, Rick, that sounds so simple. Are you, is it a trick question? No. Nothing trick about it. 
I've spoken to so many people over the years. Right? I'll make a comment about the gospel, make a comment about the forgiveness that's in Jesus, and I'll hear someone say, well, I hope so. I hope that what you're saying is true. That person doesn't have certainty. Now, why doesn't that person have certainty? Maybe they haven't seen the evidence. Maybe they haven't really been indoctrinated in the evidence very well. Maybe they, maybe they haven't seen much of the Word. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is yet to convict them of their hearts. What, you, you see, this is, there's three legs here. Sometimes we refer to this as three legs of a stool. You know, if you take one of the legs off, you don't have much of a stool, you know? You have to be kind of a circus act to keep this thing working. Um, the evidence, the Word, the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but when you got all three, when you got all three, you can, you, can, you can sing hymns like, Because He Lives, I can face tomorrow. Why can you face tomorrow? Because He lives. There's the evidence. There's the Word. There's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I wrote those words down in my little notebook here, and you know what I wrote after that? I thought, tomorrow, let's not so much worry about tomorrow. Because He lives, I can face today. Sometimes we just need to get through today, don't we? Especially when you're in the emergency room. Lord, just get us through today. Tomorrow we'll take up tomorrow when tomorrow comes. We still have a lot of today left. Let me make one final application, and that's to evangelism. And, you know, um, how can we lead others to have certainty? Well, we go to the evidence, we go to the Word, and we need the work of the Holy Spirit. And in our kind of circles, you know, we like to get our theology right. You know, um, when I think of the church, and I think of especially the Reformed church, we like to have our theology correct. You know, we make we like to be studying our Bibles. We want to be accurate with our our, our exegesis of Scripture. We want to get all of those things down. When I think of the Reformed Church, I think of people that are in books all the time. And I think of people that study all the time. And I think of people that are very uh, wanting to be desirous to be theologically correct. And all that is wonderful. But unfortunately, when I think of the Reformed Church, and I don't mean this as a hard slam, but I, when I think of the Reformed Church, I do not think of a group of people who are necessarily on their knees. Sorry, it's just not the connotation that comes to me. And here's the thing. If we really believe that we need three legs on our stool, if we only believe we need two legs on our stool, then great. Let's get the evidence out. Let's go through it thoroughly. Let's follow all things closely. And let's get our Bibles out. Let's learn them upside down, backwards, forwards, inward, and outward. Let's do it. We're going to be left with a two-legged stool. We're always going to have to keep it propped up ourselves. We need a three-legged stool. Do we really believe that the Holy Spirit and His work is necessary in leading our loved ones to Christ? Do we really believe that to be true? Right now, it's easy for us to all bob our heads up and down, yes. But how much time have we spent actually praying for the work of the Holy Spirit to work in those hearts? That is reflective of what we really believe isn't it? And I'm, I'm afraid that in many cases we have a demerit coming in that area. Now, that isn't something that's just wrong with the Reformed Church. That's something that's just wrong with the church, period. 
But here we have a three-legged stool. It's just, it's just, this isn't a question. I'm not, in, I'm, not in, I'm not in any kind of waters that are, that are in any way. Um, um, I'm not on any kind of limb here with this. This is, you know, this, this isn't an area where we all disagree or some only agree, you know. We're not, we're not talking about infant baptism right now. This is something that we should all be agreed on. This is one-on-one stuff. This is basic stuff. And I think, you know, as we think about the Christmas season coming, we think about New Year's coming, and New Year's is always a good time for us to say, you know, Lord, we'd like to take over a new leaf. Maybe this year we could take over a new leaf. What new leaf could we come out of this? The title of the message this morning is Certainty. That's the title. What is Luke up to? He wants us to have certainty. Someone will say, Rick, you could have said that in five minutes. We could have been out of here a long time ago. Well, yeah, I could have, but... How does Luke arrive at that certainty? We see how he arrives at that certainty. Um, how are people going to get it? The evidence, right? The Word. The work of the Holy Spirit. What should our new leaf be this year? Dependence upon God. Dependence upon God. Depending on God. Lord, this is the year. We, Lord, this is the year. We really want to see... Our family members come to faith. This is the year we really want to see Uncle Ned give up that bottle. This is the year we really want to see, you know, our cousins, they're going to stop fighting and their marriage is going to get put together. Lord, this is the year we want to see, you know, Uncle Junior come to church. This is the year we really want to see. How is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Dependence upon the Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, here we see that Luke is writing to us that we may have certainty concerning the things that have been accomplished. Father, we see that this certainty is arrived by the evidence that's overwhelming. We see that it's according to a plan. Oh, Lord, it's according to a clear plan that you've set forth in Scripture. We see the importance of the Word. But, oh, Father, we also see, and we could spend more time on this, but we would see it even clearer that, Lord, without you working by way of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people who hear, that, Lord, um, it's a two-legged stool. It's not going to be certain nor secure. And, oh, Father, we ask and pray that, Lord, we as the church, who will pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to come upon our unbelieving loved ones? We, we shouldn't wait for them to pray for it. Father, we see the need of us this morning really to turn over that leaf where we are collectively dependent upon you and calling on you to do this work in the lives and the hearts of, of our loved ones and our fellow citizens here in the valley, O oh Lord. So, Father, work in us that we may call on you to work in them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.